the perceptive person will see overtones of Platonism. You know, there's something of Plato's anthropology of imprisonment, that the soul is, as it were, imprisoned in, in, the, in the body. And the idea is, um, is a prison break. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I am Brandon Vaught. I'm the content director here at Word on Fire, and we're joined by the great Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Brandon, always a joy to be with you. You are fresh off of your annual visit to the Archdiocese of uh, Los Angeles's Religious Education Congress. Yeah. All the bishops of, uh, of Los Angeles attend that each year, but you were invited to give a talk to the whole crowd in the main arena. What did you choose to speak on? Why and how did it go? Yeah, you know, I had something else I was going to talk about. I frankly forget what it was, but many months ago now when that Pewform study came out that said 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus, I called my assistant and said, call the Congress right now and tell them I'm changing my topic to the real presence. So I had this room, the arena, as you say, at the Anaheim Convention Center. I have seats about 7,500, I think, or 8,000. Uh, so I don't know how many were there, but big crowd. And I thought, well, one of the biggest collections of, of teachers, catechists, uh, preachers in the country. So I did an hour and 15 minute catechesis on Eucharist with a focus on the real presence. Uh, so, yeah, you can find I think it's up on Facebook or something. You can see the whole speech. Uh, but I just felt it was super important. Yeah, the full video is up on both Facebook and YouTube, but okay. I'm hoping to take the audio of that and we'll probably use it for a future episode of the Word on Fire show if you haven't heard Good. it yet. Okay. Um, another cool thing you did, Bishop, was you were interviewed on the Order of Man podcast. Oh, yeah. This is a podcast aimed at young men, mostly non-religious, and we were connected to it through our friends on the Mind Pump podcast. Yeah. So similar type of audience, similar type of vibe. How'd that discussion go? Good, good. It was a long discussion. I think we talked for 45 minutes or an hour maybe, and uh, mostly about the Bible. So I put a great stress on uh, like stories of David and what they tell us about um, being a man in a biblical context, the call of, of masculinity. And I talked a lot about you know the spirituality of that and to get away from a purely secularized understanding of, of masculinity and put it in a biblical framework. Um, it was good though. I enjoyed that conversation a lot. Well, today we're going to be talking about Gnosticism. Gnosticism, you've described it many times throughout the years of this podcast as maybe the most enduring heresy of the church. It has roots almost at the very beginning of the life of the church, and you still see it all throughout, not just the general culture, but even inside the religious world too. So we're gonna spend the whole discussion talking about Gnosticism. Let's begin with definitions. What is Gnosticism? Well, of course, it's kind of famously hard to define. That's part of, that's part of its, its allure and power. It's a little amorphous. But just begin with the word itself, Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So the Gnostics claimed they had a sort of private knowledge, a specialized knowledge of the way things really are. Now, what was that knowledge? Now I'll go back to the second century and some of the great figures of that period when, when the movement was very strong. It was the knowledge that the world as we see it, this material world, is kind of a fallen world. But yet in it, trapped as it were in it, are sparks of a spiritual uh, reality. And the idea now, the salvation 
enterprise is to get these spiritual elements, these souls you want or minds, out of their captivity to matter and to reunite to their purely spiritual origin. The whole Gnostic program, if you want to get the, all the details, read the first you know, three volumes of Irenaeus Against the Heresies, but that there's a sort of primal source of, of all reality, a purely spiritual, and then a whole series of emanations that come forth from that primal source, leading finally to a very low-level spiritual power who makes the physical world. And the physical world, therefore, is a, is a fallen world. It's a, it's a compromised world. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but for certain reasons, uh, spiritual elements get trapped in the material world. The gnosis in question, the knowledge is, this specialized insight into the situation and the means by which we can extricate ourselves from our captivity to matter. The perceptive person will see overtones of Platonism. You know, there's something of Plato's anthropology of imprisonment, that the soul is, as it were, imprisoned in, in, the, in the body, and the idea is, um, is a prison break. So the whole point of philosophy is to rise up above, to escape from matter. Well, that's kind of a, a call it, semi-Gnostic uh, point of view. Um, but it borrows from a lot of other sources, too. But that's, I think, the basic structure of it. You know, talking here in the 21st century, we have such a well-developed, systematized philosophy, theology, metaphysics, that I think to a lot of us, something like Gnosticism seems a little weird and, and kooky. But I can see how in the first few centuries of the church, the, the lay of the land is still being shaped. You know, we've received this great revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead. We have the scriptures. The church is trying to make sense of all this. Gnosticism gained a lot of traction in that atmosphere. What about Gnosticism was so especially appealing to people? How did it plant such deep roots almost right from the beginning? Well, I'd say several things. One is, is dualistic systems have always been attractive. They still are. Watch Star Wars movies. Dualistic systems that lay things out in clear, good, bad terms. Spirit's good, matter's bad. Uh, it makes sense of the deep ambiguity of this world. It helps us to explain things in a pretty simple, straightforward manner. Um, and what's also deeply attractive about the Gnostic enterprise, we've always loved the prospect of being part of a little group that kind of gets it, that understands the, what's really going on. And most people, they don't get it. Most people are lost in illusion or they're, they're lost in ignorance. But there's a little group of us that we have the secret knowledge. Um, it's also a program uh, for salvation. You know, so escaping from matter and returning to the spiritual source. You can see that, Brandon, up and down the centuries. That's always attractive. That I belong to the little group that has the insight and also has the program that solves the problem that bedevils us. All of that makes it a, an attractive system. Among the early church fathers, so these are the first great theologians of the church, uh, Irenaeus was probably the staunchest opponent of Gnosticism. Yeah. You mentioned just a, uh, a few moments ago yeah. how he devoted a great part of his writings to combating Gnosticism. How did he do this? What were some of his arguments against Gnosticism? He's one of my heroes, as you know, St. Irenaeus. And I, I think along with Origen and Augustine, the greatest of, of the fathers. Um, he's a figure both Eastern and Western in a way because he's from the East and has all of that influence, but ends up in Lyon. He ends up in the Western part of the church. And his book is just of extraordinary significance, the Adversus Heresis Against the Heresies. Um, 
One of Irenaeus' great opponents was Marcion, the founder of the Marcionite heresy. What's Marcion's point of view? That the Old Testament is a kind of a testament of a fallen God. And again, remember the Gnostic thing. You have all the emanations coming way, way down, and one of the low, low level spiritual powers makes the material world. Well, that, says Marcion, that's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's this you know, creator God that, that makes the grubby world of matter and with things that creep and crawl on the earth, and he calls them good? You see how that's consistent. Yeah, the fallen God would call this grubby material world good, but the true God, I mean, has nothing to do with that. He barely even knows the material world exists. And so Irenaeus says, look, if you're going to be a Christian, you take not just the New Testament, which Marcion recommended, get rid of the old. In fact, only keep certain parts of the New Testament. He thought that other, certain parts were tainted too much by the Old Testament. So take a little tiny bit of the New. Irenaeus said, no, no, no. You won't understand Christ who's the Messiah of Israel, apart from the Old Testament. The God who made the whole world is not a fallen God. It's the same God. That's the God of Jesus Christ, who's called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Irenaeus holds out a deeply anti-Marcionite position. A word, and I, I did some work on Irenaeus some years ago. It never bore fruit as a book. It was supposed to, but it's a long story. But uh, I, I want to call it something like Irenaeus of the body, because the word body comes up all the time in Irenaeus. The body, bodiliness, bodies, that bodies are good, that matter is good. Uh, and the program is not escaping from the body. The program is, is the salvation of the body, of the whole self, which is a very Jewish perspective. And mind you, Irenaeus, who famously always said, I was taught by Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who was taught by John, the friend of Jesus. His point was, my theology is very close to the apostles, and therefore to Jesus himself. Jesus, who is the Messiah of Israel. So he saw this great continuity between Jesus and the Old Testament. And that was his basic argument against the Gnostics, is they would invite a bifurcation between the two Testaments that was really fatal to Orthodox Christianity. How did some of these early Gnostics view Jesus and the Incarnation, what was their Christology like? Well, it's interesting because one of the marks of the Gnostics up and down the ages is to take Christian language, but I would say basically empty it out, inhabit it with their own material so that it looks like classical Christian stuff, but actually has been radically changed. So Jesus would be a Gnostic teacher who was teaching this truth of how to escape from the, the confines of the body and was giving us a spiritual program to help his followers do that. Um, the resurrection of the body, I mean, forget that. You don't want the body resurrected. You want the body to get rid of that. He was giving you a program for escape. Call it the classical Christian language had to be deciphered, again, by a, a small coterie of in-the-know people who knew how to crack the code, see? Now, here's something that comes, Brandon, to my mind, and it was a great personal experience I had. This is many years ago when I was in Rome as a visiting scholar at the North American, and um, Pope Benedict was Pope at the time, and I would go down whenever I could to the Wednesday audience, you know, where he would speak. And during that period I was there, he was speaking on the Church Fathers. And one day I went down, and his topic was Irenaeus. And uh, Benedict spoke 
uh, beautiful French. And he spoke this, this in French. And he was describing the quality of Irenaeus' theology. And he mentioned a lot of things I just mentioned. But then he said, C'est une théologie publique. And he repeated it. Une théologie publique. It's a public theology. And his point was, it's an anti-Gnostic thing. So there's the, you know, ostensible Christianity. But the real Christianity is what only a few people off on the side, they, they know the real story. No, 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 no. What you see is what you get. Now, it can be understood to varying degrees, the way a child understands it, the way Thomas Aquinas does, but yet it's the same faith. It's the same public Christianity. Uh, there isn't a hidden, privatized Christianity off on the side that a few adepts know. No, no. What was publicly proclaimed on Pentecost, that's the same faith that's embodied in the Gospels, the same faith preached by the other apostles, the same faith preached today, right? And we're not um, appealing to a little private remnant or sect that properly understands it. That's a really important anti-Gnostic move. I think Gnosticism exploded on the scene maybe 15 or 20 years ago with the publishing of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, you know, which positioned the whole narrative of Christianity as it's not what you've been right. told. You know, there's yeah, this secret right. knowledge about Christ and Mary Magdalene, these hidden yeah. Gnostic Gospels that the church has kind of tried to push off to the side. Uh, but then from there, Gnosticism just seems prevalent in our, our movies, our cultural issues. And that's what I want to spend the rest of this yeah. discussion talking about. Maybe let's start with the movies, maybe. You mentioned Star Wars already as an example of Gnosticism on film. I think, too, of another uh, a movie, Doctor Strange, the great yeah. uh, superhero character. You see Gnosticism all throughout his story as well. Yeah, the dualism. Uh, I don't know the Doctor Strange as well. I did see that movie, but um, you and Father Steve and others understand the whole mythology behind that better than I do. Uh, but Star Wars certainly has a Gnostic quality because of its fundamental metaphysical dualism. Uh, in a biblical perspective, an Irenaean perspective, it's dualistic. God is God. God's the Lord of all things. Matter is good. Sin compromises things. Sin is the problem, not matter, right? Um, and it's not a battle between God and some rival to God. None of that obtains. It's a much more subtle uh, story. It's a much more intriguing story, really. Now, read someone like Tolkien. He gets the Christian thing from the inside. Compare Tolkien to Star Wars. It would be very illuminating, actually. Both involving, you know, struggle and against evil and all this. But the Star Wars telling is a Gnostic telling. And I'll give you the genealogy. Star Wars produced by George Lucas, who was a disciple of Joseph Campbell, who was a disciple of Carl Jung. And Carl Jung, in his psychologizing early 20th century, is deeply influenced by the Gnostic. Uh, approach. And so that's the, the genealogy leading right up to Star Wars. Uh, Tolkien, on the contrary, is influenced by his Catholic faith, which goes right back through people like Irenaeus to Polycarp to John. You know, that's his genealogy. And it's a whole different game. Another example of Gnosticism in the culture today, you've talked about this countless times in your videos and books, is what you describe as the culture of self-invention. Yeah. How is this a manifestation of Gnosticism? Well, I'll tell you exactly how, because uh, in the Gnostic view, the, the body is fallen, right? And the spirit's what's all about, what's going on inside of me. That's, that's what it's all about. And the spirit has this prerogative to shape matter. Matter is just a sort of fallen 
uh, infinitely malleable thing that spirit has total control over. Well, we see it, of course, as you say, broadly in the culture of self-invention, make it more specific in the gender ideologies to say, I, I can remake my own body according to my spiritual whim. I'm not happy with the body I've been given. Well, I'll change it. Um, that's a basically Gnostic impulse. Rather than saying, no, I am who I am, a creature of God, both body and soul, uh, in an integrated unity. Uh, that's a Catholic or biblical anthropology. Gnostic anthropology is um, a tension between spirit and body. Body in a denigrated position, hence able to be manipulated by spirit. Um, you know, it's interesting, we could go all day on philosophical overtones, but many have pointed out, read uh, Cyril O'Regan for the details, that many of the modern philosophers have a Gnostic quality. Whether it's Descartes himself, the founder of modern philosophy, with his sharp bifurcation between the, the res cogitans, right, the thinking thing, the mind, and the res extensa, the extended thing of the body, and the two are in this kind of, you know, uh, opposed relationship. Or whether it's in someone like Immanuel Kant, the, the sharp noumenon phenomenon distinction. Or in Kant, the only thing that's really good is a good will, right? And that the, the realm of the, of the phenomenal, the realm of the material and so on, is not immediately relevant to the moral enterprise. Um, bring that up into the 20th century and those uh, philosophies of um, fundamental option. You know, when you say uh, there's the outside where I'm doing particular things, but then deep down within, I've made this fundamental, you know, choice for God. And so I'm basically good, even though I sometimes do bad things on, on the outside in my particular moral acts. Uh, well, there's something Gnostic in that because it's elevating the interior over the exterior. It's privileging the spirit over the body. A healthy, I would say, Irenaean, Thomistic approach sees the deep integration of those two. To make just a quick word about my hero, Thomas Aquinas, and you know, I, I reverence Plato and, and the, the Neoplatonists influenced Christianity in very positive ways, but it's interesting to note in the uh, 13th century, when Aquinas opts for Aristotle, which was a very controversial option at the time because of the dominance of Plato from the early fathers on. But see, part of what Thomas liked in Aristotle was this greater sense of the unicity of the person. He was worried about the sort of Platonic anthropology, you know, of the spirit kind of trapped within the body, the spirit needing to escape from the body. Thomas was a great theologian of the body, as Irenaeus was. And he saw Aristotle there, I think, as a better philosophical conversation partner because of the unicity of, of mind and body. Another place that we see Gnosticism pop up pretty regularly is in the realm of conspiracy theories. And I'm yeah. thinking not just of the wild theories outside the church, you know, aliens, Area 51, whatever the conspiracy theory of the day is, but also inside the church. We're seeing a rampant increase in conspiracy theories about who's manipulating what and taking control of the church. They all bear the marks of this Gnostic idea that there's a small group of yeah. enlightened adepts that really know the truth of what's going on and everyone else has been deceived. Do you trace conspiracy theories yeah. right back to Gnosticism? It's part of the appeal of it. And there's a psychological appeal. From the time you're a little kid, who doesn't like that? When there's a little in-group that knows. You know, hey, hey, we, we know what's really going on here. Um, and that's always been attractive uh, psychologically. And yes, there's an outbreak of it now, I'd say, in the church. 
You know, another place to see that, if you want, is in someone like Marx, who's so influential on contemporary thinking. Marx, who has the um, kind of substructure, superstructure view of things. The superstructure, so what appears out there publicly is, you know, the military, politics, religion, art, culture, all of that. But what's really going on? We, we adepts of the Marxist system know what's really going on is economic, you know, plays of power and so on. And what comes up around the substructure is this elaborate superstructure, which is simply defending the substructure. Standard bit of Marxist analysis, but it appeals to that idea of being part of an inner group that kind of knows the truth of things. Uh, who is Marx's teacher but Hegel? And Hegel's often seen as a, as a semi-Gnostic figure. Uh, think of the way he sort of deconstructs uh, art and religion philosophically. So it's the philosophical adepts of the Hegelian system that really understand the movement of spirit. And art and religion are kind of, you know, they're, they're relatively primitive attempts to articulate what the philosophers, the Hegelian philosophers, know. So all of those moves, um, I think, are, are quasi-Gnostic at least. Well, we're here 20 centuries almost after Irenaeus is doing battle with the Gnostics of his day, and, and we still see Gnosticism flourishing all around us. Why does this philosophy perdure? Why is it still prevailing? And, and what can we Catholics do or offer in response to it? Well, I'd say, maybe reiterating what I've already pointed out, but there's something that's both intellectually and psychologically appealing about it. Intellectually, it's the relative simplicity of it. There's a certain black and white quality, uh, good and bad, spirit good, man or bad, and then those various um, expressions. So intellectually, dualist systems have always been appealing. Psychologically, I'd say, it's precisely that conspiracy theory, holy remnant, little inner adept, a group of adepts that know what's going on, um, that I belong to the club. I belong to the private club that really understands. Josef Ratzinger, c'est une religion publique. It's a public religion. We don't like little private groups of adepts that claim to know what's really going on. That's always a bad sign, a sign of corruption. So I'd say both intellectual and, and psychological grounds for its popularity. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. We take one question each episode. If you have one, please send it in by visiting askbishopbaron.com. Today we're going to hear from Amanda, and she's got an issue that's troubling her about Catholic theology. Here it is. Hello, Bishop Barron. One teaching of the Catholic Church that I struggle with is the notion that we will be reunited with our bodies on the last day. The resurrection of the body is something I struggle with because obviously we have uh, the decaying corpse. Uh, thank you for taking my question and thank you also for evangelizing the church. Yeah, thank you. It's a good question and one a full answer to it would take us um, several uh, class lectures. Let me say something simple about it. Uh, the fact of the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, that's super important, it seems to me. And, and it's good that we're doing this question in our episode on Gnosticism, because the, the, per, the goal of the biblical program is not the escape of the soul from the body, but rather it's the salvation of the whole person. 
that's a Jewish perspective. Uh, uh, Jews were not Greeks. They didn't think uh, uh, allowing the soul to escape from grubby matter was the purpose, but rather the salvation, elevation of the whole person. So the doctrine itself is of great importance. Now, how do we work out the details of it? As you're suggesting, in a lot of classical theology that was maybe a bit scientifically naive, uh, the view was that, that this body of mind that has disintegrated in the grave, but that God could reassemble, as it were, through his infinite power, all the elements that made me up and reassemble them. Well, okay, I mean, I suppose God could do whatever God wants. But think for a second about this, the issue of the continuity of the body. This body that you see before you, this body of mind, um, not one cell of it existed even what, Brandon, you're the scientist, I mean, five, six years ago, it's not like the body replenishes itself completely, right? Completely new cells and so on every, whatever, several years. Think now in the course of my lifetime, how many bodies, as it were, I've had. You know, that this body's been renewing itself, drawing nutrients from the world and all that. Talk to the scientists about the details of it. But the point is, there's a kind of fluidity that's built into the body. It's not like just a given thing like a football. There it is, and it's handed on. It's an organic, more, more fluid reality. What accounts for its unity? I'll use good Aristotelian Thomistic uh, language, the form. We speak of the soul as the form of the body. Um, that which gives um, unity and continuity to the fluidity of the body. Now, after death, is the soul destroyed? No, the soul is immaterial. The soul is immortal. Can God, through his infinite power indeed, reunite that soul to a body of God's own construction, what Paul calls a spiritual body. So not just you know this, this kind of grubby earthly form in a, in a, in a mildly improved uh, condition, but a, a remade body, but given continuity by the, the unity of, of the form. Uh, so I can speak indeed of my body, just as like, yeah, this is my body, and the one I had when I was six years old was my body, yet there's not one cell that's the same, right? Yet it's still, it's my body. And so I'd still be in continuity with this resurrected body, though it might have little to do, as you suggest, with the body moldering in the grave. Uh, so anyway, those are some of the details of how we might approach this question. Ultimately, we rely on the power of God. Uh, as we do now, from moment to moment, I exist through the power of God's uh, causality. So I will there as God raises me up as a resurrected body. Well, thanks for the great question, Amanda, and thank you for watching this episode on Gnosticism. One final note, if you want to get a copy of Bishop Barron's newest book, I mentioned it last week, it's titled Centered, The Spirituality of Word on Fire. We want to send you a free copy of that book when you join the Word on Fire Institute. If you're a member of the Institute, the copy's already in the mail. It's on its way to you. If you're not, sign up at wordonfire.institute and we'll send you a free copy of this book. It's a collection of different writings and quotes and excerpts from Bishop Barron's work, all categorized by topic. It's a beautiful, meditative, reflective book that I think you'll really enjoy. Again, it's called Centered, The Spirituality of Word on Fire find out more either at wordonfire.institute or wordonfireshow.com slash centered. Well, thanks so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.